church today. That sounded like Eddie James was in the house or something. (laughs) Oh, oh, my, my, my. Segway into that, right? (laughs) How about a prayer? Gracious and loving God, you are so good. We can't even comprehend how precious our time with you is. You are good. You are our security, our rock, our redeemer. So in this moment, God, draw us unto you. Breathe us in and breathe us out back into the community with your love and your grace. In this we pray, amen. Amen. (laughs) We could just do that is what I think. So, so we are in the middle, as Mark said, in a sermon series, just a little three-parter. I'm the middle one, and uh, the end cap is going to be Ryan Ralston next week. Um, y'all might remember her. She's the one that built the thing of shoes, the mountain of shoes. I'm sure she'll come with some new props for Sunday, uh, but you'll wanna, you, you don't want to miss that. What we're talking about over, over this three weeks is our mission as a church. Now, the mission of a church is, is where we put our walk to the, the talk, right? Our mission is, and Resurrection MCC's mission, is to demonstrate God's unconditional love to all people through Christian action. So that is where we are, the hands and feet out into our community, taking the unconditional love of God through action. Uh, not so much preaching, but doing. And last week, we started this conversation reflecting on the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Very interesting reflection. We hear a teacher approach Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And they get in this conversation about being a neighbor. And apparently, a neighbor and being a neighbor brings us life and meaning and purpose. And being a neighbor is one who shows mercy and compassion. And so this uh, parable or the story that Jesus talks about, it's a whole lot of doing going on, not much talking, but it's an actual story of someone out there in dangerous places Uh, taking risk with their own life, extending help to someone who's in need. It's just being a neighbor of someone who notices the injustices of another and participates in lifting them to a new place. Uh, So it's just really very action-oriented. But very interesting enough, right after this story, Jesus leaves and enters into a village, and he goes to visit some friends, Mary and Martha. And uh, Luke just takes us directly from the story, into this um, conversation that Jesus is going to have in in this family. And um, if you might remember Mary and Martha, they are the sisters of Lazarus, the one that Jesus calls from the tomb at some point. And in in the, the readings that we have about Mary and Martha, we come to understand that they are very precious to Jesus. Um, it appears that they are very close friends and probably his chosen family, the place that he most likely goes often, um, kind of kicks up his... uh, hills and and relaxes while he's on his journey. So Mary and Martha, this is the house, and so we really kind of go very quickly, Luke takes us in just a stroke of a pen from the parable of being a neighbor and what it looks like to be a neighbor, and then we get to see a true story of one being a neighbor to Jesus. Very interesting story. (laughs) Until you get to the details. I love Luke, he's the historian gospel writer. And he kind of puts us uh, in interesting places where we get to see different details. And in this particular story, it's almost as if he sets us in the living room couch of Mary and Martha's house. We get to sit there and watch this family drama unfold. And it kind of goes something that we probably are very familiar with. It kind of goes something like this. 
I'll exaggerate a bit, as pastors do. <laughs> so let's just imagine Jesus arrives at the door, and there's Martha, so glad to see her friend and her companion, and, and lets him, he comes in, and she immediately wants to make him feel at home in what she considers his home. And so I'm sure she takes his bag, if he has one, has him remove his shoes there and guides him into the place, you know, a nice comfy place. Probably goes and sets up his room. Probably goes to his room and sets whatever he has there, you know, make sure there's clean sheets, fresh towels in the bathroom. Um, she may have noticed, you know, music would be nice. And so she may walk back into the living room at some point and maybe put on a nice little soft tunes, this gentle melody into... <laughs> Do I have some Marthas in the house today? And so, <laughs> and you know, probably when she was doing that, she noticed the dust, you know, that he had tracked in, and so she probably went over there and swept that, and anything else, you know, that might have been untidy, you know, the things we had under the rug. So she's probably, you know, just making sure, and then she probably topped, you know, got him something to drink, and then kept coming back and making sure and topping it off and checking on him and just really trying to make him feel at home. Went into the kitchen, you know you gotta have a nice meal for your friend. So I'm sure she's looking at the menu and trying to get it just right. Probably started marinating that lamb. <laughs> you know, and just really, you know, making sure that aroma drifts into the room. And somewhere in there, you know, somewhere in there, in the, all this stuff that she's doing, we hear that she has many tasks and all the stuff that she's doing. I'm sure she's made many appearances in and out of that space. She begins to notice something that drives her a little crazy. She begins to notice that her sister Mary has plopped herself down with Jesus and is acting like, you know, I'm sure, yeah, you can top my drink off too. Uh, you know, so something seems to get under her skin because it becomes her moving around becomes compulsive almost. She becomes distracted in, in this uh, hospitality she's offering. This is, let's look at what Jesus' response is. It says, Martha was distracted by her many tasks and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and anxious, distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Martha has chosen the better part, which will not be taken from her. Ooh. How many of us Marthas like that response? just called us on the carpet with our little busy self. <laughs> I think it is just absolutely hilarious that in this moment, as she gets so distracted with her stuff, she never, I mean, I'm sure she tried to communicate to Mary in her own little way, you know, with like a couple of glares and, you know, but she never went to Mary and said, can you help me? Instead, she gets passive aggressive. She goes to Jesus, hey! Right? Is that what us Marthas do? Get a little passive-aggressive in our fuss? But you know, the thing about this, if we look at it in all humor side, if we do look at it, it is frustrating because it appears that even though Jesus kind of gets triangled here, it appears that he takes, a, he takes sides. If you just kind of read a quick reading of this, it would appear that he has taken um, Mary and Martha and created this dichotomy and, and, and kind of lifted up what Mary is doing and kind of somewhat said this is not the best thing. So if you was to look at it at a glance you might get that feeling like well then I just need to be quit being Martha. Mary can go get her own drink. 
<laughs> but, you know, we really, if we just put it into context again, though, and think about what Luke's doing here with us, we did just hear the story of the Good Samaritan. And there was a whole lot of doing going on in that story. And so how do we place this in the context, and how do we make sense of what Jesus is trying to communicate here in this situation? What are we to notice? Um, there's a scripture in Matthew. Uh, let me make sure I got my... Matthew 7, 24. Jesus says, Therefore, anyone who hears the word of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise person who builds their house on the rock. So I would say that it would be too easy to say that this is a dichotomy of um, right and wrong or that a doing faith is less than a contemplative faith. I don't know that that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Because Jesus, somebody's got to slice the onions and boil the water, okay? <laughs> I mean, because it just doesn't make sense. That doesn't hold water. It can't be an either or. It's got to be a both and. And we know that because, A, we have this Good Samaritan story. And, B, we have Jesus. God could have just thrown us a big old love sonnet in the air, wrote in the clouds. We're talking about God here. I love you people. <laughs> you know, and, mm, but it didn't, it didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen that way. God came and dwelt among us and entered that daily, messy life. Jesus is sitting on that couch. Jesus gets hurt, beat, loved on, gathered with people, ate. Jesus was one among us and walked. That is God's love, that it would manifest itself in tangible ways. So it, it seems to me that the Christian faith has got to be a both and. Uh, the love of neighbor must come from the love of God, and the love of God must equate to the love of neighbor. And so it, it's a both-and situation here. So what is Jesus saying when he says, Mary has chosen the better part? The word for better there, the really better translation to better, is good. What uh, Jesus is just slightly saying here, if he was to get to it, is that she's on the good part. It's not that one is better or not. He's saying the good part. And what he's talking about, the necessary part. It's the rock upon which all other things should be done. What he's saying to Martha is he's putting a spotlight on her frustration. And he's saying, your stuff has caused you to be distracted. And distracted means drift away from that which you were most concerned about, which was me. And so what he's, saying, what he's really saying then is sometimes you lose the why to the what. If you're not careful, if you don't stay constant and checking in with the rock, checking in and trusting the good presence of God, that you might drift off and distract yourself from that which grounds your very being. So, it's, so I think Jesus is highlighting anxiety. Ooh. Anxiety. Now, um, anxiety is an, interesting, is an interesting dilemma here. It's worry. And what we see is the way it manifests itself. It comes when we uh, get distracted, anger, bitter, passive-aggressive. <laughs> so we know what anxiety 
feels like and looks like in our own body. And I think it's an interesting thing that we have in anxiety. And I, I want to share a story with you before I go any further in talking about it. It's, uh, there's an author, Rachel Naomi, Rachel Naomi Remen. <laughs> kitchen Table Wisdom. Y'all have heard me use her before. I just love this woman. She's uh, The two books that I love the most is Kitchen Table Wisdom and Grandfather's Blessings. But I have um, Kristen sharing uh, a beautiful story about anxiety. Freedom. I was just beginning my private practice as a counselor to people with cancer when a patient of mine died. He was young, a 40-year-old engineer with cancer of the pancreas. He was referred to me by his oncologist who said, look, I've run out of treatment. I'm willing to talk to him, but I really have nothing more to offer him. Knowing this doctor to be a kind man, I realized he simply did not know that he had anything other than his expertise that might be of value to his patient. So I said I'd be willing to talk to this man for whom there was no further treatment. Shortly afterwards, we started our sessions. Richard was a reserved man, very tall and gaunt. He was always carefully and impeccably dressed. The clothing he wore was made to fit the much larger man he once was. I was struck, as I often am when people are this sick, by the iron will that kept him going. He had refused my offer to visit him at his home, insisting that he would come to my office. Later, his family told me it took him more than two hours to dress himself. Refusing their help, he would put on one shoe, then rest, then struggle with the other. We did four or five sessions together in all, and we talked about many things, about his symptoms and his bitterness over what had befallen him, about his feelings of isolation from the people around him, about opening communications with his family. Once or twice, his family came, and we all talked, and it helped. One day, as he came in, he asked me if I would write him a prescription. Are you in pain? I asked, my heart sinking. Had his complex regimen of pain control lost its effectiveness? It was all we had. He shook his head. No, he said. I'm just anxious all the time. I haven't been able to sleep for two nights. I just lie there. Can you give me something? I said that I could, and I asked him if he had any idea of what was causing this. You've been through so much, I told him. Why now? He had no idea. Had he been having dreams? Just the one, he told me. In it, a ravenous beast was pursuing him. He had not been able to see it, but he had simply known it was there. He awakened, sweating, but he couldn't remember anything more. I waited for him to continue, but he had not made a connection between the dream and what he was feeling. Perhaps we should revisit that dream, I suggested. It may help us understand. He nodded his agreement. I suggested then that he close his eyes, take a few deep breaths, and let me know when he felt ready to begin. When he signaled his readiness, I asked him to imagine himself back in his dream. This proved surprisingly easy for him. In his imagination, he started to run. In the next 10 or 15 minutes, I did everything I knew to help bring him into another relationship with the beast that was pursuing him 
to free him of being its prey. Nothing worked. Become invisible, I suggested. It can see me. Hide behind something. It knows I'm here. Talk to it. It won't answer me. As it gained on him, his anxiety grew. As it began clear, it became clear that he would not be able to evade the beast, I began to ask him questions about it. He still could not see it. He continued to run, but gradually his answers helped him to know a great deal more about it. He told me that it was irresistible and merciless. There was no negotiating with it. It was inevitable, but it was not evil. He was very clear about that. In fact, he said it seemed to him to be natural. After some time, I said to him, you know, Richard, you've tried everything. Maybe the only thing left for you to do is to allow it to eat you. I had expected him to object, to talk about the things he was attached to, the people he would leave behind, but he immediately moved in this direction, and he imagined himself overtaken. For a while, things became intense. Richard sat with his eyes closed, weeping, sweating, shaking so forcefully I could hear his chair rocking. He seemed too frail for this. I began to doubt the wisdom of this thing. But slowly, the shaking stopped. He grew calm. Gradually, the room became deeply still. And in the stillness, I had the impression of sunlight, but I knew it was almost five o'clock. Richard seemed completely relaxed and at peace. So was I. We sat there together for a while, and then he said softly, there's light. There's only light. I am light. We sat for a while longer, then he opened his eyes and said, hey, I don't feel anxious at all. That was great, doctor. The session was over and he left. I'd forgotten to give him the prescription for tranquilizers. He had not reminded me. Anxiety, he stared the beast, let it have him. Can we imagine? I was really intrigued with this idea of anxiety, so I pulled up a book off the shelf, Rollo May, <clears throat> The Meaning of Anxiety. He interviews a variety of psychoanalysts, psychologists, theologians, and, and various people to try to get an idea of what anxiety is. And um, the one thing that they were all uh, fairly clear about is the difference between anxiety and fear. Fear um, manifests itself in um, fear of danger, of something that we, can, that we know, that we kind of have a, a knowing about. Anxiety is a little bit different. It hits us in a different place and kind of in a deeper way because anxiety is that feeling of uncertainty and um, out of controlness that we have. And so it, it, it's, so they all agreed that anxiety is really objectless. It's vague. And so we attach ourselves to this unknown thing. And, and that's when we allow it to consume us if we're not careful. Uh, my thought about anxiety when I look at Martha specifically is that it became a tool in her tool belt. It seems to me that the thing that we most deeply desire is to know and to be known. She loved Jesus and she wanted time with Jesus. But somewhere in that, 
the intimacy may have scared her. Somewhere in that, it seems that we use this uncertainty and the compulsiveness of it, this busyness that we entertain in all of the ways that we each know that we do this. We do it to almost sabotage the thing we most desire, to sit in silence with God and ourselves and each other. The listener, and to be a, a listener, requires us to be vulnerable and requires us to um, take chances on what change may come in the listening. Uh, and so we get afraid of that. Uh, so the refusal to listen or to the refusal to engage in the listening is a, is a spiritual issue. And I find it um, very well displayed in this particular story. And so I really I want us to think about um, what it would mean to listen. It says in the scripture that God created from the silence. What would it take for us to do this thing Mary had done and sit in the goodness of God and to trust the goodness enough to sit in the silence with God? What would that look like for us? What would it look like for us to do that with each other? Or to do that when we're talking about mission and vision and purpose of our church? And how do we engage in that? Because I think what we clearly see from the story is what happens when we don't. That we become, uh, we lose our sense of self, we, we isolate ourself. I mean, she was not engaged in anything of real meaning in this story. So I want us to think about holy listening. I love this, uh, and this also came from Rachel. Our listening creates sanctuary for the homeless parts within us. I love that phrase. Our listening creates sanctuary for those homeless parts in us. It is the way we reintegrate ourselves in the presence of the true life force. And so we need to entertain the idea of this holy conversation. If we are going to be talking about our mission, we must first go to the rock and from that source of being, love our neighbor and take time to silence our world enough to sit in the life-giving and breathing presence of God. And we will do that when we do it with each other and when we do it as a church and when we do it in our lives. It's a gift that we can give each other. There's a variety of ways that um, we can do this together. Some of you have entertained connection groups. I have one myself and I cherish those relationships um, and the sacredness and the, of the listening that we create. Um, and so the connection groups are a great way. Reverend Kristen uh, met yesterday and 19 people got together and they're thinking about the programming for the next Chalice series and um, every Wednesday night I can guarantee you there is a place that has been designed uniquely for you to come and um, create a space for you to listen. Um, and then this thing that Mark's doing where we're talking about our mission, you may think I don't really, and I don't know what we need to be doing in the community. I don't, I don't know. Well then maybe your call is to be one of the listeners. Maybe you come to one of these groups this Wednesday or the Sunday next week and sit there and listen to what other people have. Because sometimes a lot of people got a lot of different ideas and it just takes somebody hearing that and kind of gathering it and being able to say, oh, it sounds like there's something consistent God is doing in us and through us. So we just, there's so many ways that we can do this together as a body.
of Christ. Amen? Amen.